everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Real Conversations About Aging Parents. As I promised last week, today we will do part two of two with Stephen's story about his dad. So if you haven't had a chance, it might be easiest to go back and listen to part one. So part two will make a little bit more sense. Uh, I also think this podcast will be airing on Valentine's Day. So my love to everybody who's uh, listening and being a part of this project I do ask if you know somebody who might benefit from this type of podcast to share it with them. That will help the podcast grow and reach more people. So anyway, I will see you next week. Oh, that's like that that would be shocking to yeah, me. It was pretty surprising. Hear. Okay. And what happened next? Did he go to the sniff? He did. He went to the sniff and hated it, loved it. Uh he was fine. He uh you know the if I summarize his whole visit, he's very compliant with all his therapy visits. Um, I'm sure I was a bit of a pain to them because I said, hey, I want his therapists to call me and give me an update because he can't give me a meaningful update all throughout this time. Hey, dad, how you doing? Well, I think I'm doing great, but you'll have to ask everybody else because I thought I was doing great before you came. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but they were all fantastic. And, you know, it was kind of interesting being a physical therapist the person I was least concerned with was his physical therapist. Like functional mobility wise, he had been living alone, walking, transferring, all that, all on his own. His occupational therapist, yep, had some interest there. His speech pathologist, definitely. That's who I wanted to talk to. Yeah. And they redid the MOCA there. He scored a couple points lower even than he had at the hospital. And that's where I got a little more information on what are his deficits? And it wasn't really memory. There was some very short-term memory, but it was really processing of tasks. And the first conversation I had with her, she said, hey, you know, had a great visit with your dad. He, he really can't do tasks. For instance, we put out the stuff to make a sandwich and he was pretty much max assist to follow the steps to make a sandwich. So for non-therapists, that means that he needed basically almost full support to... Yeah. To go through the steps. Tell him yeah. what to do next. He could do it. He didn't need physical help, but. So his sequencing. His sequencing definitely could not do. She said, but, you know, there are some good points. You know, our visit yesterday, because I didn't talk to her first day he was there. You know, at the end of the visit, I was supposed to bring him a blanket and some ice cream. And I brought him the ice cream, but I forgot the blanket. And when I showed up for his visit today, he reminded me that I had forgotten to bring him a blanket the day before. Huh. So that he could remember, but sequencing tasks he could not do. And like, it sounds like even like executive functioning, like, right. like what's the next, what do I need to do tomorrow? What do I need to be prepared for the next meal? Things like that. Yeah. So she just really gave you an affirmation of what you'd already seen in real life. And it lined up, it sounds like nicely. Like It did. Yeah. And so, yeah, he did, he did pretty well there it, you know, from talking with them, he did improve physically some, uh, by the end of his 20 day stay, I think he had gained at least two pounds. So there's yeah. something there. Um, but that was your trial of improved nutrition mm -hmm. and supervision. Was he going to like turn around and like be like, Hey, I have no idea what, why, why I was acting like that. Yeah. And so then the concern turned into what now? Right. He's going to run out of time here. He, in talking with their care coordinator, he doesn't meet the, the requirements to stay in long-term care on Medicaid because 
you have to meet two of three criteria. It's one. This was Utah based, right? This, yes, this is in Utah. Yeah. Their their guidelines were, you know, you, you either needed, you know, mobility assistance, and he didn't need that. He was independent walking around the facility. Help with ADLs, and he really didn't need help with ADLs. He was at most standby assist, which means somebody has to watch him maybe, but really he was modified independent or independent with that. And then cognition. And definitely he met for cognition, but he you have to meet two of those three criteria. And they even had several meetings of their staff. Like, is there any way we can justify this? And ethically, they just said, no, we just cannot justify. And then there's financial requirements too. Is those plus? Yes. Okay. And the financial requirements we could have gotten to. Shockingly, you know, there are some things that are exempt. So people can have quite a bit of stuff and still qualify for Medicaid. Uh, If what they have is a little bit of money, then they don't. So up in Utah, it's $2,000. If you have more than $2,000, you are rich and you do not qualify even if you have nothing else to your name. Yeah. And so he had a, a, a little bit more than that, really not a lot. And I could easily, that could easily be gone from his hospital visit he just had. So that yeah. wasn't a concern. Uh, more, more concern was he just couldn't do that. So what do we do next? That was, that was a big thing. I've already got these assisted living folks working on that. In the meantime, I've worked to get him registered for social, social security because he qualifies. But he for regular social security or for disability for regular retirement social security. Okay, he just hadn't pulled it yet. He hadn't pulled it because, in true dad fashion, if you wait until seventy, you get more. And so Uh he was going to wait until he was seventy to get the maximum benefit that could be. And so, you know, I've registered for that. We're still waiting on that to see what happens there. It takes them about thirty days plus to Mm -hmm. process some of those requests. And so I was hoping that between whatever might come in, whatever his benefits go and his pension, that would cover a small place in an assisted living somewhere. And all throughout this, uh, one of the most shocking things was going along the way and him saying, hey, you know, we really might, you might not be able to go home. You might have to go to assisted living. How do you feel about that? And he would respond with, well, you know, whatever you think is best, the best we can do is the best we can do. And that is not a normal response for him. Well, what is normal have been? His, his normal response Hell would no. be that I'm very independent. I don't need that. And, and there's some of that showing up now. So he he ended up going home. We couldn't get him placed straight from the SNF to an assisted living because by the time we figured out he really wasn't going to be able to stay there, there wasn't enough time. Uh, since then... He has toured an assisted living, just one. And I said, how was it? Well, it was great. How were the people? People were nice. Had a lot, you know, a lot of good conversations, but I think it's too small. So I think I'll just stay here, meaning his house. And I said, okay, well, that I'm not sure that that's a good idea. He's like, I understand, but, you know, I'm not sure I need that. He did end up going home with hospice. A hospice nurse assessed him at the end of his skilled nursing stay. And so he's home with hospice. So somebody's at least touching base with him. But, you know, when they offer many, many different things. The two most basic ones are nursing care and a non-medical provider, a caregiver. And he turned down the caregiver, said, I don't, I don't need a caregiver. 
And even since then, he said, no, I think we made a good decision because by the time they would come every day, I'm already up and I've bathed myself and I'm dressed and I don't know what they would be doing while they were here. Uh, And so he's pretty pleased with that. Uh, I'm not just because he gets fewer touches during the week, fewer people, fewer days where somebody went in the house for at least 20, 30 minutes even just to see how he is. Um, but that's kind of where we are right now. He, he toured that facility. I'm trying to get him to tour another facility. Uh, the first one was too small. I, I don't feel like the second one's going to be any bigger. And I think some of that is, yeah, it's small. I think a lot of it was he came to the realization that he wouldn't be able to take his things with him. And for somebody who doesn't own a home, the car he owns I don't know the last time it drove. It's a late 90s Honda Civic, uh, and the battery is inside his house on a trickle charger. Um, so it hasn't driven in years. I, I'm confident of that. Uh, and why so, do you think he stopped driving? He never drove much. And why he stopped driving is very much my dad. So his car, his driveway is next to the yard, and his landlord's had somebody come out to trim the trees and a bush came out and cracked his windshield or a branch came off, cracked his windshield. And he said, well, sorry, that happened. You guys need to pay for that. And they refused to pay for it. And he sure wasn't going to pay for it on principle because it wasn't his fault. And so (laughs) then when it came time for inspection, the car couldn't pass inspection and it hasn't driven since. Wow. Because I'm just wondering, because sometimes that's an early cognitive issue when they stop driving, but that sounds like a different different scenario. So I'm interested. I know they assessed him as not having capacity, right? Yes. Uh, they, and I can't even remember what the acronym stands for. You probably know they sent what's called a PULST form to me. And his physician said, you know, I don't think he has capacity to make medical decisions but he does have capacity and has consistently named you as his person, his agent who can help make decisions for him. I haven't gone through legal battles to get a a power of attorney. Um, If I sent him one, he probably would sign it. Uh, And so that's something I still consider, but I'm, I'm not to the point where I'm willing to have an all out fight and force him to move somewhere uh against his will why is that because i trust that when he's telling me what his will is that's real to be in his house to be in his house he has said several times he wants to stay up in that area because part of all this was hey do i leave him up there do i bring him down here and i i did a lot of thinking about that and and really what i landed on was a down here what does he have he has his family and that's it he's never lived here so he's got me my wife and kids and he's got my mom and my stepdad and and that's it but we'd more regularly be able to check out check in on him up there he has friends who have known him for years uh one of the things that i may be magnifying in my head but i think is really important is he's got people who have known him as something other than who he is right now. He's got people who have known him since he was very capable. And, you know, while I say he was very used to living without, he also 
would help anybody at the drop of a hat. If you needed something and he thought he could help with it, he would be there. And he's got people in that area who remember him as that person. I think that's really interesting and beautiful that you say that because it's a it's a lot of things to consider, right? There's this knee-jerk like, it'd just be easier if you were just here and then I wouldn't worry so much. And a lot of times it just be that's like a unilateral, like, so I don't have to worry and you're extra safe. I don't know if you're going to be happy here, but I know you're going to be bubble wrapped and in the back room or something. And so I love how you explain the the reasoning because it's individualized, right? Like where mm-hmm. is he the happiest? And especially if you're getting some signal that he's got a shorter time to live than longer, then he needs to participate and as much as he can in that decision making. Right. Right. And he it sounds like he at least you have that he has been clear that he wants to stay. Yeah, so that was factor three. He wants to stay there. And factor four is culturally, I think it's easier for him to stay there. He's very religious, and that's very important to him. And where he is up there, most of the facilities, if I'm able to get him to agree to go to one, they hold church services that would be meaningful to him. Mm -hmm. Whereas if he came down here, I don't think that's really as likely or likely at all. Yeah. And so those are the factors that at least for the time being have led me to say, okay, let's work on finding you a place up there. And if we get everything going and get everything settled, you know, I'm watching my stepfather kind of do this with his dad and he just does his best to make a quarterly visit to where his dad is. And his dad has got significant dimension, doesn't even always necessarily know that he's there visiting, but that's just, he had the same struggle. Like, do I bring him here? That would make a lot of sense, but we'll leave him there and I'll visit more frequently than I have in the past. How How is he dealing with, like, how much insight and curiosity does he have to, like, the decline itself? Like, does it seem, does he seem depressed about it? Does he seem worried? Like, how is he processing? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, somebody yeah. who was, like, kind of, con- not, not controlling, but, you know, lived alone, very independent and kind of ran their own stuff and now they're needing all this extra help like does he understand what's happening i don't think he recognizes as as much the level of help that he needs but he somehow at the same time is not really in denial because that statement i made earlier of well i think i'm doing great but other people tell me i'm not that's to this day remained a consistent statement. Hey, and I talk to him every day now, usually multiple times a day. Uh, and Hey, how you doing? I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm up. Um, you know, everything's good. He knows if he's supposed to get a visit from hospice that day, and he'll be ready for the time when uh, the person from that first assisted living was going to come and pick him up to tour the facility. He was ready to go and outside and walked out to their car and met them like he can do those things and so in some ways i think the fact that his physical decline hasn't been that big is really hindering progressing him through his care because he he thinks he's doing all right he can get up he can get out of bed he can get dressed it might go back and forth i mean i watched it when i was there he you know when i showed up one morning he had kind of underwear and a and an undershirt on with a coat because it's cold a little bit it's utah 24 degrees or something like that 
And then he went to, had his pants on with his undershirt tucked in. And then the next thing I knew, he didn't have any clothes on. And I didn't really know why. Mm-hmm. And then he went through the process of getting dressed again and was fine and was dressed and was ready to go. But I, I don't know why there was that hiccup in the middle of it, but there was. Did you ask him? Uh, <laughs> You're in observation mode, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Maybe this is his thing. Dad's new. I don't and, Interesting. and there are things he gets confused about. And he, when I'm really the most concerned about him, is not in an angry or an aggressive way, but he sundowns quite a bit. Okay. Depending on the day. So one of the nights while I was there, I, I had asked him, you know, hey, you getting tired? You're ready for bed? Yeah, it's about time for bed for me. Okay, great. Do you want me to stay and help you? Nope, I'm good. I'm just going to go to bed. Super on 6.30 local time. He calls me at 11.30. And I'm like, hey, dad, is everything okay? Well, it is now. I've gotten a hold of you. I said, okay, what do you need? I needed to get a hold of you. Okay, you did. What did you need when you got a hold of me? I needed to get a hold of you. Okay, do you want me to come over there? No, why not? Because then I'll lose you and I won't be able to get a hold of you again. Okay, where are you? I'm in the kitchen. What are you doing? I'm just standing in the kitchen. Okay, I think I need to come over there. No, don't do that because then I'll lose you and I won't be able to get a hold of you again. And I said, well, my phone moves, so I'm going to stay on the phone with you while I drive to your house. And I got there and he was just standing in the kitchen talking to me on the phone. And I said, what's going on? I don't know. What do you need? I don't know. I'm sorry. I can't do better than this. Oh, wow. And I said, okay, well, let's get you to bed. And he was like, okay. And then he still just kind of stood there. And I re- this is where the processing steps came in. Like I had to walk him through what we needed to do to get in bed. And it's the first time I, I had to help him really do anything while I was there because he was just so confused. He could not take those next steps. And it's not every day, or at least not to that degree. But that day it sure was. And since then, it's happened at least once. He called me in the middle of the night here a few hours after he was had I had talked to him and he was going to go to bed. And I said, hey, what are you doing? I'm talking to you on the phone. Okay, where are you? I'm in the living room. We probably should go to bed. Well, I can't. Why? Because I'm talking to you on the phone. I'm here in the living room. I've got my stack of papers here. I've got, you know, this thing over there. And this should be impossible, but here I am doing it anyway. I said, what's what's not possible? I don't know. Okay. He was just he was just kind of stuck again. And I talked to him for a while and it was obvious he was not there there he wasn't able to process anything. I said, Well, how about you go to bed? Well, I can't. All my bed things are in the bathroom. Why are your bed things in the bathroom? And I don't think they actually were. Yeah. I think he was just confused because I'm not even sure he was in his living room. He could have been in his bedroom. And so now you're kind of on call. Oh, yeah. He 24 calls the, 7. He calls all the time. And I, I have not gone to turning my ringer on at night. This night when it happened, uh, I guess the buzzing of my phone on my eye said, woke my wife up and she comes and taps me. She's like, hey, yeah, your dad's called like 12 times. I was like, mm-hmm. okay. Um, so, you know, talked him through it. And then finally, after 
I'm not sure how long it was. It was quite a while on the phone of just talking to him, not making much sense, but just keeping him engaged. Uh, he said, okay, well, I think I'm going to go to bed now. I said, I think that's a great idea. Hmm. And he did. And he called me the next morning pretty early. I said, did you sleep? Yep, I slept. How did you sleep? Well, not very well, but I slept okay. And you got up and you're waiting. He's like, yes, I am. And during the day, he doesn't exhibit really any of those behaviors. And it's, again, it's not every day, but if if he somehow gets past his breaking point, it's almost like he runs out of gas and then he's just stuck. So you got to get him in bed before he runs out of gas. So I'm curious what your experience of this is. And I, I'll yeah. just start by like, I mean, I know this sounds very like procedural, like you did this and then he did this and then they called and then you did this, but this is an emotional and psychological experience for you as well. And I'm yeah. awfully sorry that you're having to go through this, but like, where is your mindset now? It just seems like a lot. And you're also an only child right. and he's also a single, mm -hmm. right? So... My mindset now is, I, I, you know, I'm trying to set boundaries and I'm aware that I'm in charge of those and can change them whenever I want. And some of that depends on what's going on. So how are you aware of that? Uh, I have wonderful mother and stepfather who grew up teaching parenting classes. He, he's a chaplain and has a PhD in counseling psychology. And so I was raised hearing a lot of these things that I feel like everybody grew up with, but I'm like, everybody did not. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so. I mean, the fact that you like a, a, like immediately go to healthy boundaries is kind of like interesting, right? Like, yeah, that's not everybody. And, and so. so, for example, one of those early boundaries I set when he was in the sniff and wasn't going to get to an assisted living and dad doesn't have much money. They say, well, you can private pay to stay here. And it's. 250 some odd dollars a day or something like that. I immediately set the boundary that, you know, the money he has and the money he's been putting away in this account for me, all that money's fair game. If we need to spend it, that's fine. But money, you know, I'm not mortgaging my kid's future to make sure that I take care of dad right now. How did you decide that? You know, you don't get out of these without really some hard questions. Right, it is. And I, I say that out of fascination because one of the reasons I love having these conversations is we get to this point and you're like, naturally, this. I do this. And the truth is, I could talk to 10 other people and you would get 10 different answers. And yeah. so my my curiosity is always, how did you come to that conclusion? So you could go and take your life savings and put him in the Hilton of assisted livings right now. And somewhere in your brain, I mean, obviously, at the point he doesn't work when I go, but like the idea is you're setting these kind of future boundaries. Um, where is that coming from? So in some ways, I feel like it's really easy for me because if he were here earlier this year, his five years, year ago self, and you said, do you want that to happen? He would say, absolutely not. So he just knowing him, I know he'd be bad if you took. Absolutely. Your life savings and something took away from his grandchildren. That is a bad idea. And he will make it through. Don't worry about him. He'll be okay. 
So you're taking a prior knowledge of this person's, you know, druthers or whatever you want to preferences and inferring, even if you can't have that conversation face to face. And I wouldn't say that's what makes the decision for me, but it makes it makes that decision easier and come with less guilt, I would say. Okay. Because I know that he wouldn't want that. So the rest of the decision making, I think a lot of this comes through. I've been talking with my mom, taking care of my aging grandfather on that side and my stepdad taking care of his aging grandfather. So I've gotten to watch and see through some of these things and start to formulate, okay, what do I think is healthy about that? What do I think is not healthy about that? Um, and what have you, what do you consider not healthy? A what complete have you seen? lack of boundaries, blank checks, just whatever you need. We'll, we'll go do that. Like, I don't think that's healthy. Um, taking kind of semi panicked trips without a plan or without something that you're going to accomplish while you're there and just, well, I'm, I'm going up there. Well, why are you going up there? Well, just, it, just, and I'm like, okay, I don't think that's overly helpful but if you're going there for a reason to handle something that can't be handled from afar absolutely go do that thing if you've got a a real task at hand and so those are things where it's just kind of i i have a feeling and i need to help so i'm going to do something but i don't know that that something leads to anything that's what i've decided to say i i don't really want to do those things i want to do meaningful things so i want to say something here and it's probably super unfair and it's a little off topic But I have this theory that it's a little bit different for women. And my theory is that as a mother, you have these these little people around you and you're almost boundaryless by design, right? I'll do anything for you, not, you know, coddling and all this stuff. But I mean, just like this, they're born and, and they need everything done. And you become very habituated to the blank check that you describe for these people in your life and there's a period in time where those people are growing older and maybe don't need you as much but that patterning in your brain is still like right underneath the surface and so if there's an aging parent that suddenly needs care it's almost like this very quick transition back into that you know blank check drop everything type thing and i just wonder to myself aloud that for even men who are also parents, not having necessarily had that maternal experience, that boundaries still feel very familiar to them and like tools that have to be kind of implemented. And that maybe that explains a little bit of the differences that you see or variability you see in a daughter with an aging parent versus a son. Now, you don't have to comment on any of that, but I just wanted to bring that out because it, it and I'm, it's just, interesting to me and very good for you to be able to to employ those so readily like you're already aware when this chaotic thing is happening that you need to have boundaries like that's like your first blanket um and for a lot of people the way they get into trouble is that's the last blanket right it's like you know it's the last thing you think about so anyway i have no other point other than to say that i appreciate you sharing that yeah no and i don't think that's unfair and i'll even take it a step further and this is again just from the mind of me which could be a dangerous place but just in seeing the way my wife and i interact with their kid i think that maternal instinct absolutely is there but i think the disparity gets even more magnified when you're taking care of somebody of the same gender 
because this is again just for me but the way i interact with my son need him to grow up and be capable and responsible and all these things and i need to take care of my daughter and my wife is almost the opposite she needs her daughter to grow up and be a strong capable woman and she's going to help her get there and she's going to take care of my son interesting and so i can't say that i would handle this equally if we just reverse my parents and it's my mother and do I do the same thing? I don't know. This is all theories in my head, but that's just a thing, I think. So are you okay? I am okay. What makes you okay? I'm okay. A lot of what makes me okay is I know, even though I'm not there, he's got really good friends who, if dad doesn't come out of his house, they will notice it. At least, at least come Sunday, they'll know. And so he's not completely alone uh, and they'll help him take care of some things. Um, hospice being there and helping him get set up with meals on wheels. Cause food is my biggest thing for him right now. Um, and I'm okay. Cause I still have some hope. I'm going to get him, have him tour a different place. You have Maybe hope of him going to going assisted to living, assisted not life. recovering, not of recovering. No. So it sounds like the information you received sounded very final to you. I say this because usually there's a bunch of follow-up outpatient visits and 50,000 tests. And like, it sounds like you and the care team were very comfortable with the diagnosis and the prognosis. Yeah, I'm comfortable with it. Uh, there's a big part of me that says, I think that might've been a little far. You know, I don't think that come summer, I'm burying dad. I could be, but I, I have a feeling that if I can get him somewhere where he's getting nutrition and interaction, because as much as he probably wouldn't want to admit it and may not even realize it, he's a very social person. So my biggest concern right now is he's mostly isolated. He's been told by his friends, you can't leave the house without permission. Because if you leave him up to his own devices, he'll go try to start, take that several block walk today to go back to the family history library and see people. So let me ask you a question, and this could also be unfair. I'm, I'm observationally hearing you speak about it. I don't pick up a lot of resistance, like to the diagnosis, to the process, to the fact that his life is in danger. And I know I, I, I have no judgment about that. I think it's interesting. Of you're you're very matter of fact about it, and I'm wondering for a lot of people that could be a cultural thing, it could be a religious thing, it could be like where inside of you is the the la like. The, when somebody else might be panicking and upset and like demanding more testing and like, let's go to five more doctors and, you know, figure this out. Like where, how do you settle on sort of where you're at right now? Um, for one, I was very pleased with the care he got in the hospital. So it was your trust and the quality of the care mm -hmm. that was expended in that three or four day hospital stay that gives you that drops some of that, like what would be a resistance to that. That's interesting. The, they would drop, I mean, that's the initial part of it, right? I feel like they ran the tests they should. I don't feel like rerunning the test is going to result differently. I feel like everything they said made sense. Um, and so that part kind of eliminates the need for me of, oh my gosh, what's happening? We need to change this. Um, I think that it'd probably be unfair to leave out the fact that 
pretty regularly in my work, I deal with people in somewhat similar situations. I deal with people who we might tell them, in my professional opinion, excuse my own, you know, Mr. Steven, I don't think you're safe to live at home. Well, I don't really care what you say, and I'm going to go home. Right. And what word you might fall when you go home? Well, if I fall, I fall, and I'm going to go home. Okay, great. So there's that, and there's some experiences in work that I've I've come to over the years. I mean, I can even think back to when I was a student doing my initial rotations, not even a physical therapist yet. It was at an acute rehab, and we had a guy who was there really not doing very well, and the family was really looking for some guidance. They were kind of what you're describing of what should we do next? Are we doing enough? Oh my gosh, what is happening? And I was really impressed with my clinical instructor and he he made it pretty clear at the outset, like, hey, I'm, I'm your, your dad's physical therapist or your husband's physical therapist, not his physician, but here's here's what I see and here's what I hear from his other providers and you should probably follow up with them. Well, what do you think we should do? And he said, I can't tell you what you should do, but if this were my dad, I'd take him home and I'd let him die at home where he wants to be. And he did within 10 days. And they were really grateful that somebody was willing to step out there and say, Here's I'm going to drop yeah. the barriers and the walls a little bit of, well, that's outside my scope of practice and this and that. And they just said, if this was my family member, Here's what I think the deal is. And so, I don't know, I think some of that work has, you know, helped me learn to accept this. It'd probably be unfair to leave out the religious thing. He's very, like I said, he's like very God's religious. Will. Yeah. He has used God, God's will as a reason he doesn't do things so many times in his life. It's, <laughs> God it's, has not willed me into this. It's so one I, of his ways to end arguments is, um, well, I just don't feel like that's what the Lord wants me to do. Well, who? how can you argue with that? Yeah. And so, I mean, that's another part of why I'm comfortable with the boundaries, because years ago, we and his friends up there had said, hey, you should probably move to Texas. You, you said when you retired, you were going to move down there and be closer to family and you're retired and you can move down there. And I just don't feel like that's what the Lord wants me to do right now. Okay. I can't help you with that, but we're here. We invited you and your friends up there think it's a good idea. And so there's a part of me that not in a mean way says, you know, as much as you might've complained about where you lived over the years and some of the frustrations with city government and choices that are made that way, you actually really like where you are. And that's, that's at least what I'm inferring, whether that's what's coming out, I don't know. But that's what I'm inferring is you really do like where you are. You've said that point blank here recently and said, I want to stay here as long as I can. And he, when, when he made that statement, his friends and I, this was during the intervention, we clarified. Now, when you say here, do you mean in this house or in this area? And he said, in the area, in Salt Lake City. And so... I think it's really what he wants. And so that makes that part easier for me. And then there also is a part of me. And I, I think too many times and too long about things, but if he's not going to thrive and if he's not going to be able to be independent, and if he's going to live a life that if you had put it in front of him and said, what do you think about this? And he would say, I hate that. That looks terrible. Don't ever make me do that then I don't think he would be too upset if he does stay 
relatively functional and maybe his body just doesn't thrive and then he has a very rapid decline and you know unfortunately passes away at a, a very young age yeah he's he's young i mean he is that's yeah and i i think i mean gosh dude, that's a whole other podcast right but like that that's hard to know that they're living a life they never would have wanted and yet obviously just all the things you mentioned in our healthcare system and the way things are set up i mean we persist them in states that they don't necessarily want to be in now even he's in hospice i mean that's kind of the most that's the closest you get to honoring okay i don't really want to live this way and so we kind of have these programs that are not aggressive and treating things but with vascular dementia there isn't a shoe that's gonna fall nope um, i mean you might have a, a stroke or something but like his vitals are good. <laughs> I was he's, like, he's, you know, and so anyway, I, I just, yeah, that, that'll be a whole other discussion. So it is. Um, but yeah, I think if you really got down to it, and I don't even know if he could verbalize this, but if you asked him, hey, do you want to live a life where you can't be helpful to anybody and you have to accept help from everybody? He would probably say no. Well, I'd say he's got some problems there too. I mean, and, and back to your discussion about gender, I think a lot of men do like, I should never need help and right. I should, and if I need help, then that's weakness and that's a problem. And yeah, I think we've got a lot of work societally to do in that regard. Yeah. But, you know, he's, he's gotten a little better here recently at accepting the help and being grateful for it. But I think if you stuck in front of him, you won't be able to help anybody else anymore, at least in the ways that you think then that's not so great. And I guess I, I hadn't thought about it before right now, but I think that's part of why I'd like to get him to an assisted living because he might be able to be helpful to somebody by having conversations and telling jokes and being a friend to someone where when he's in his house alone, he can't do any of those things. Well, I think I am so glad that you sat down with me to talk about this. And Sorry, I talk so much. No, I appreciate it. I, I think it's, I, this is exactly what I'm here for. This is exactly why, you know, we worked together for a long time and you were very supportive when I was like, I'm going to leave my job and start a podcast and do a bunch of other stuff. And this is why I, I think this topic is just so interesting to me. And um, I appreciate you being, you've always been like, yes, we can talk about it. And that's what this is. It's a, it's literally happening right now. Um, and it's a conversation and you sharing that helps other people normalize to like, what is he thinking? And why does he think that? And I, and you're helping other people. He's helping other people. He is. Right. By you sharing his story. So I do hope that you will allow us to talk again later oh, this year. I'm sure. Absolutely. There will be lots of developments in the next couple of months. And, and so this was a lot of background and not a lot of me. What am I doing? Feeling, thinking. And yeah, I'm happy to talk yeah. more about that at, at any time. I appreciate you and the opportunity and I love what you're doing and I'm proud of you for being brave enough to do it. <laughs> Good. Well, I need people like you willing to talk to me. So, okay. So then this is going to be just a suspension until the next time Sounds people will get to watch your story over time. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Hey everyone. It's Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to take just a moment to review the disclaimer. This podcast is for informational and occasional entertainment purposes only. Nothing discussed here is formal medical, legal, or financial advice. 
By listening to the podcast, we are not creating a patient-doctor relationship between you and myself or any of the guests. Really, it's just me and a possible guest or two, sometimes three, sitting around talking about difficult topics related to aging parents. If you have or suspect that you might have a medical problem or condition, you should seek advice from a licensed medical professional. If you have any questions or concerns, please read the full disclaimer in the show notes or contact me directly. Thank you again for joining us today. I can't wait to see you next week. Have a good day.